Uh, summer is on the way. Uh, one of the things that means is bushfires. It doesn't matter quite so much around Ashfield, but it's pretty important if you live in the Blue Mountains or up towards Port Stephens where my son Lachlan is uh, coming back from and there's been bushfires around there. Uh, the authorities encourage people living in bushfire zones to have a survival plan uh, to be ready when a bushfire threatens. Uh, and the first part of a survival plan is you need to decide whether you're going to stay or whether you're going to go. You have to make a decision on how easy your access is to get away and how well prepared you are and all those sorts of factors. As the flames get closer, do you stay and protect your property or do you go and be safe or maybe, depending how close it is, you might risk travelling uh, through fire but you might lose your home as well. So it's a big decision to make, stay or go. Make the choice and then prepare accordingly. There's a similar choice here in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, The Corinthians knew that Jesus was coming back, they wanted to be ready and so they were getting their Judgment Day survival plan together. Uh, They were living in the last days and they wanted to make sure they were ready. Uh, And it seems like some of them thought that the decision to be made was that they needed to go. They needed to move from some place where they were to some other place, especially in the area of marriage, which is what chapter 7 is all about. But as Paul considers marriage and also a number of other uh, factors in your life, uh, his message is that God has put you where he wants you and he wants you to remain where you are, to, to be content, to be steadfast and all of that is a measure of how much you're trusting God in the situation. That's true whether whether you're married or whether you're widowed or whether you're single. Uh, You can see the chapter begins in verse 1 with a reference to a letter that the Corinthian church had written to Paul. Uh, Now for the matters you wrote about. Seems like they had a number of questions, they had a list and Paul was going to work through them and uh, he comes to the first one. It is good for a man not to marry. Now it literally says it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, that's probably what the Corinthians themselves had thought and maybe quoted in their letter. They'd written in their letter. It's good for a man not to touch a woman, isn't it? Uh, It seems there were some who thought that uh, it was more spiritual for husbands and wives not to sleep together. And their thinking connected with Jesus coming back probably went something like this. Jesus is coming back and and the flesh and the the world will all be done with... uh, and we're already, we've already begun to live the heavenly life. Uh, we're living in the end times now. So surely let's just get a head start on, on the spiritual life and, and give up on the physical life. Uh, and we'll be more like Jesus if we do that. But Paul's saying that's not God's will at all. Uh, marriage is not the problem. Marriage is actually part of God's solution. Abstaining from sex in marriage won't make you less evil. It won't make you more spiritual It's actually God's way for us to avoid sexual immorality. It's part of his protection, his godly plan to protect against evil behaviour. It's not a cause for evil behaviour. And then he explains what God's will is in verses 2 to 6. To guard against sexual immorality, uh, men are to marry a wife and each woman is to have a husband and then they're not to deny each other. That sort of gives us a little hint into what the the Corinthians were suggesting was the, the plan. Uh, their bodies belong to each other. Uh, depriving each other doesn't lead to greater spiritual maturity. It doesn't prepare you for Jesus' return. 
It just leads to a lack of self-control and to temptation. And so in this first situation, Paul's message is, don't change, stay as you are. Yes, Jesus is coming back, but just keep living the way you're living. And he's got the same message for those who've been widowed, verses 8 and 9. Stay, stay unmarried. Uh, He'll return to that at the end of the chapter and we'll see some reasons why. Uh, And then verses 10 and 11, those of you who are married, stay married. Divorce is not the answer. It won't make you more spiritual. It won't get you ready for Jesus' return. Even, verses 12 to 16, a special case of those who are married to unbelievers. It's no different for you. You should stay as you are as well. Don't make the mistake of thinking that you're being corrupted by having a non-Christian spouse. In fact, he turns it around. He says, in some ways, there's a sense in which your non-Christian spouse is more holy. They're set apart. They're in a better position because they're married to you. They're being exposed to the Christian life in a way that makes them better off because of you. They may benefit from you, not the other way around. It may be, verse 16, your spouse is actually saved through you. But notice what he does say, verse 15, if your unbelieving spouse wants a divorce, let them do so. You can't make someone commit to a marriage if they don't want to be married. And then he makes two comments, two reasons why. God has called us to live in peace and how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband. And notice he doesn't flip it around because in that culture it was the husband who made the decision to leave uh, and it wasn't up to the wife. So presumably this was a non-Christian husband who said, can't live with a Christian wife, Um, that's not my religion. Uh, And so behind his advice, Paul is saying, uh, it's not about you having to convince them. Uh, God can... Uh, is the only one who can convince someone to be a Christian. Uh, you can't force them to stay married to you. You can't force them uh, to become a Christian. It's better to lose the argument which may lead to winning their soul uh, and it's up to you to act with grace and humility and love and peace and then leave the saving up to God. Well, that's that situation. Verse 17, we can see this general principle applied to a to a whole range of other situations as well. Uh, Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches, in a whole range of different ways. Uh, Wherever Paul goes, he says God has called each person to that position where they are and so they should be content. It's uh, expressing your faith in God that he's sovereign, that he doesn't make mistakes, that he's working all things for good. And then he goes on to give some examples. Circumcised, stay as you are. Uncircumcised, stay as you are. And then the reason, verse 19, it's not really important. Circumcision doesn't matter either way. What matters is obeying God. Obedience in a wider uh, range of matters in, in your, across your whole life rather than just this one particular act. And then once again that verse 20, the same general principle, each one should remain in the situation they were in. Another example, verse 21, if you were a slave when you became a Christian don't let it trouble you. Stay as you are. 
And then he gives the reason. You've been purchased by something far more valuable than money. In those days you could sell yourself. If you had debts you could sell yourself into slavery until the debt was paid off. And so Paul's saying you've sold yourself into slavery but you've actually been sold for a far greater. You've been purchased by something far more valuable than money, the the blood of Jesus. That's the relationship, the slavery relationship that, that matters far more than your earthly state. You've been set free from sin and judgement. So work at being the best Christian slave you can be, he says. Remain. And then again, 24, the same instruction, remain in the situation God called you to. But notice he doesn't advocate slavery. Verse 21, uh, some wise, some realistic advice. He says, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. Now, This confidence in God's sovereignty expressed in just remaining as you are, it's not to be misunderstood as fatalism. Uh, Sometimes it's actually right to change your situation, to to, to move from where you are somewhere else. Uh, But his big point is, if it doesn't work out, don't be concerned, God's in control. Uh, Fatalism might end up with us staying as we are when it's right to change. Uh, if you're sick, if you take Paul's words to, to too far, uh, too far, you may end up not going to a doctor or you might have the opportunity to get an education or to, to buy a house or to, to get a different job, uh, which would all be good things. Uh, and Paul is actually saying, if the opportunity comes up and it seems right, take it. But don't worry, either way, God's in charge. You might think, well, hang on a minute, are we supposed to stay as we are or are we supposed to look to change? How do we work out when it's right to actually be motivated to move into a different situation? Well, I think maybe one test is to look at your motivation. Is your desire to move from where you are to somewhere else because you've you've got this lack of contentment, uh, this thought that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence? Uh, is there something of distrusting God's plans uh, where you are? Uh, if that's the case, then maybe it's, it's not a good reason for you to be looking to change. Uh, perhaps if you're genuinely seeking God's will and you're happy either way, uh, whatever, God might lead, whatever direction God might lead you in, that, that might be a good reason to move, uh, to be weighing up the options and checking your motives. Well, verse 25, Paul moves on to consider people who have never been married. Uh, Verse 26, uh, same thing with them. Uh, And in verse 26 he says now about virgins. So that seems like that's the next uh, question that he's ticking off the letter. Now about virgins. Because of the present crisis, I think that it's good for you to remain as you are. And he's careful at this point to point out it's not a matter of right or wrong. They're not being disobedient or sinful if they choose to marry. Uh, You have not sinned, verse 28. Uh, He says it's a matter of wisdom. No specific command from Jesus, just Paul's own judgement as someone who's trustworthy. Uh, At the particular time that they're living in, there are some good reasons not to marry. At the end of verse 28 he says... Those who marry will face many troubles in this life and I want to spare you this. 
Now, if we just take that verse out of context and we don't look at what's going on around, that could get you into a lot of trouble. But remember that he's, uh, he's just said why it's good not to marry. He said because of the present crisis. It's probably persecution. What a terrible situation it must be for Christian fathers and husbands whose family are taken or kidnapped by Muslim extremists perhaps. Or maybe they themselves are threatened with having a family member killed unless they renounce Jesus. Uh, It would be better in those sorts of circumstances for someone not to be married, that they don't have that much to lose. It's wiser not to have those connections in the present crisis. That's what he's talking about. So, uh, that, that's the context in which it's, uh, it's better to remain single. Uh, in fact, this advice to remain single is just one example of uh, a bigger principle. Uh, everything needs to be influenced by the fact that Jesus is coming back. So, I guess in a sense, Paul's agreeing with the Corinthians who are sort of coming with this theology that Jesus is coming back but then they're sort of applying it in the wrong way. Uh, So he says in verse 29, what I mean brothers is that the time is short. Or verse 31, for this world in its present form is passing away. That is true. But the question is what does that mean for how your behaviour is affected? He gives a whole series of situations and relationships, one of which is remaining single, that needs to be coloured by the fact that Jesus is coming back, that nothing is going to last in this world. Nothing should be overvalued in this world. So verse 29, he says, From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Now, there's a verse you don't want to take out of context either. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. And I think perhaps we get a hint into what he's thinking about there in verse 31. When you use the things of the world, don't be engrossed by them. That's the attitude to have. Gordon Fee in his commentary says, those who have a definite future and see it with clarity live in the present with radically altered values as to what counts and what doesn't. And so what Paul's saying is none of these particular situations, whether you marry, whether you buy things, whether you use the things of the world, they're not right or wrong, but what counts is your attitude towards them. Uh, and whether you view those things and those situations through the lens that Jesus is coming back and, and this world is going to finish. And so what he's saying is if you're married, remember that marriage isn't eternal, it's not going to last forever. Uh, that doesn't mean pretend you're not married at all and go out and live as if you're single, it's just saying enjoy your marriage, work at your marriage, but don't idolise it. Don't make it your top priority because it's only your relationship with Jesus that will last. Jesus is the one who won't let you down. Your marriage needs to be coloured by that reality about who you are. Same thing if you're mourning. You need to mourn but remember that the mourning won't last. 
Thessalonians talks about uh, we don't grieve like those who have no hope. We grieve but we have hope. Grieving will come to an end. Same thing with being happy. It's great to be happy. God wants us to be happy but don't make that the goal. Don't overemphasise that. It's not ultimate. It won't last. And when it comes to stuff, don't set your hopes on accumulating stuff. You can't take it with you when you die. If you get the opportunity to buy stuff, great, enjoy it, but keep the perspective. Be generous. Don't be engrossed by it. It's foolish to build up riches on earth and not to be rich towards God. And he doesn't mention singleness in in this particular paragraph, but I think it's good advice for singles as well. Uh, There are some singles who want to marry so badly that they they over-desire it, they they put it up on this pedestal. Uh, but Paul might say if he was going to add uh, singleness to, to this list, he'd say if you're single or you want to get married, don't over-desire it. It won't solve all your problems, it won't stop you ever feeling lonely again and it won't necessarily satisfy all your sexual frustration. Don't put all your expectation onto this perfect marriage partner because they're not perfect. They won't save you, they can't complete you and even marriage itself won't last forever. It's passing away. Much better, says Paul, treat it as a good thing but not an ultimate thing. Now there's a big difference, I think, between that sort of attitude that Paul is encouraging and a single-minded spouse hunting you sometimes see in single Christians. Uh, this relentless swapping churches and going to camps and conferences and looking for prospects, attending all the Bible colleges you can find, sometimes works. Um, what these verses are really saying is that it's about where you find your identity. If you see yourself as a, a Christian first and a single second, that's what should determine your attitude to singleness. Uh, it's, singleness is not ultimate. It won't last. That's not who you are. Uh, Being a Christian is eternal, but being a single isn't. For that matter, it's the same with being married or rejoicing or being widowed or using things of the world. They're not eternal. Uh, In your uh, news sheets today, you've got a, a blue bit of paper, which is an article by a single Christian lady who's written about her experience and she writes, am I a Christian single or am I a single Christian? Uh, The discrepancy in grammatical construction may be somewhat subtle but the difference in mindset is profound. Which word is determinative and which is simply descriptive? You see, we singles are chronic amnesiacs. We forget who we are. We forget whose we are. I am a single Christian. My identity is not found in my marital status but in my redemptive status. I'm one of the haves, not one of the have-nots. I'm someone who has Jesus, not someone who doesn't have a marriage partner. It's a great word, I think. From verse 32, Paul has a few more things to say about singleness how it compares to marriage. 
Uh, And his point in those verses is that because of the present persecution, it makes more sense uh, to stay single. Getting married makes life complicated. Uh, It's all about uh, the life that has the least anxieties. So verse 32 he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. Someone who's single can be undivided in his concerns. He doesn't have to worry about uh, whether his wife and family are safe. He can focus solely on the Lord's affairs. Uh, One is not better or worse than the other. There are just more concerns when you marry. And of course they're not, Paul doesn't spell this out, but they're not necessarily opposing concerns either. Uh, If you're a married person, it's not necessarily a choice of well, I can serve God or I can serve my family. Of course, they're connected. One of the ways we serve God is to look after our family. We serve and teach and lead our family. We show love for our family in obedience to God. But Paul's point is one of the advantages of being single is that you can be undivided in who you're devoted to. So that means if you are single and that's probably the majority of us here, uh, there are whole areas of ministry you can be involved in at the moment that are more difficult for married people. Often seems to work out youth work or Sunday school teaching. I don't know if that's necessarily single but seems to lean towards younger people or people with no kids. But then there's also all sorts of travelling ministries that you can be involved in uh, or missionary service. Grab hold of these opportunities with both hands. Don't necessarily look longingly over the fence and think life's better on the other side. Be content. I think that's the sort of thing Paul's getting at back in verse 7. He's describing God's plans for marriage and he says, I wish that all men were as I am, that is, unmarried, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that. And I think what he's saying at that point is that whether you're single or married, both of them are gifts and they should be treated as gifts. Singleness is a gift, marriage is a gift. So if you're single at the moment, God's given you that gift. Rejoice in it, be content in it. Maybe one day God will give you the gift of marriage and then your response will be to rejoice in that and to work out how you can be used by God there. Paul is sometimes accused of being anti-marriage but I think it's probably uh, more accurate to say he's pro-singleness. Certainly in that culture he uh, is pretty uh, counter-cultural to describe the single life as a valid and a valuable and an important life. That's what God says about singleness. It's valid and valuable and important. And just a word to those of us who are married... Uh, Let's make sure we include singles. Our church family is God's instrument for providing mothers and sisters and brothers and fathers uh, to those who don't have families. Uh, One way that we can include them is to include them in our married life, to be be real and transparent about what marriage is like, uh, what marriage is like. Sometimes that means showing them the realities of married life so that they won't over-desire marriage. Well, it's not perfect. Uh, but it's also good to, to show them what's good about marriage uh, so that they don't under-desire it and uh, think it's not for them. Those of us who are married can be praying for our singles 
pray for contentment and self-control. It's pretty hard to be single, I think, today. Paige Benton Brown finishes her article with a great perspective. She says, I'm not single because I'm too spiritually unstable to possibly deserve a husband, nor because I'm too spiritually mature to possibly need one. I'm single because God is so abundantly good to me, because this is his best for me. It's a cosmic impossibility that anything could be better for me right now than being single. It's a good position to be in, isn't it? So God's message for us is to remain as we are, to be content and to trust God. That's the attitude he wants us all to have. And to remember that time is short and as we use the things of the world, uh, not to be engrossed in them because this world's passing away. Let's pray and uh, then we have a couple of questions. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd help us uh, to have these attitudes of contentment. Uh, Also help us to be looking for opportunities to serve, to to recognise the giftedness of where you've placed us at the moment, uh, that we might be used for you. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.